I think the biggest thing that has stood out to me in the research is just how little trust we have right now in our community, that this distance we have from our neighbors, there is no trust. There's no sense of of that connective tissue that used to be there. Like you used to play outside and all your neighbors would watch over your kids. That idea doesn't exist in modern neighborhoods. And that for me is really sad and it's weird looking at all of the forces that created this new reality. And building trust is not something that happens overnight. Like you said, you need to do like 10 events, 10 different events to try and reach everyone and then maybe it'll spark something in them that they'll be interested in doing more. Welcome back to the Neighboring Podcast. I'm Andrew Hoffman, the host. We have been absent for the last uh, four weeks. If you listened to the last episode, you would have remembered that uh, I had a vocal cord issue that required some surgery, and I spent a week not talking at all, which was quite the quite the experience. I figured out, or I found a uh, text text to speech app, so I got to be my office and my coworkers' version of Siri. Uh, which is really hard to kind of type and keep up with and communicate. And uh, one of the big takeaways is just how much uh, you need to be able to talk just to communicate simple things of how much I didn't go to the grocery store, how much social relationships are impacted by simple communication, not even the need to really talk a lot. Uh, But we're back. Uh, I've been spending the last couple of weeks trying to get some new episodes of Neighboring. Uh, specifically around some people that I think are doing some really interesting stuff on neighborhood development. And it's really following up on the research project that we're in the middle of where we're trying to answer the question, uh, what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy? Uh, We are through the first phase or part one of phase one of our research project. We've uh, interacted with a number of five specific four-way neighborhood associations, and we did a bunch of quantitative data and qualitative data. I talked a little bit more about that on a previous episode. Uh, But we've had all those uh, conversations with neighborhood associations. We've been implementing a few programs and getting some really great data. We expect and hope to have a report back from our research partner on this Uh, in the next week or two, and then we'll spend the rest of the summer kind of putting the details in the report together. So we hope to have some information in the fall, but this leads us to today's conversation. Uh, My guest today is also a new employee here at NeighborLink, Bernadette Becker, uh, joins us as an AmeriCorps VISTA. For those that are unfamiliar with AmeriCorps, AmeriCorps is like the Domestic Peace Corps, kind kind of their assessment where individuals... Uh, commit to, they have a number of programs where it's where individuals create to essentially a year of service um, with organizations like NeighborLink. And so we are going to have a discussion today with Bernadette. We're going to talk a little bit more about what is a VISTA uh, and specifically and more so about the work she's doing in NeighborLink. We didn't just hire some outside a company to do the research for us. NeighborLink and our staff and our team is diving into this as immersely as we can because we think it's important to do more than just pulling some data from a website and having a few conversations. We want to really get into the neighborhoods. We want to build longer-term relationships. We want to ask neighbors that don't show up to those meetings and to really round out the data. And Bernadette has joined our team as kind of a community research uh, employees. So she's spending an entire year with us 
carrying on this research, uh, assessing it, interacting, building relationships with those neighborhoods. And so I wanted to have her on this episode of Neighboring to kind of establish and get to know her and hear a little bit about what she's learning. She's been here for a month, and so she's been hard at work. And we're going to get started. Hi, Bernadette. Hi. This is, is this your first podcast? Yeah. No, actually, no. no. Um, uh, the first time it's both video and audio, but I did an internship with WBOI and actually um, produced a podcast with Ben Clemmer that was called The Weekly Roundup. So we would go through the top stories and help produce that, but not nearly as involved as this or as personally focused. Well, so. we are uh, we are just figuring out this neighboring. I think this is like our 28th or 29th episode, and so we're having fun with neighboring, but we're glad not only that you're here on this episode, but that you joined our team because choosing to be an AmeriCorps VISTA is not necessarily an easy decision, nor is it a uh, financially rewarding economic decision, but that's a part of the program, and so we want to talk about that. So kick us off by introducing yourself and uh, how you got here. So my name, like I said, is Bernadette Becker. I am from the Fort Wayne area for the last 15 years, so I've kind of always been around, but I um, so grew up in the area, went to Northwest Allen County Schools, lived on the north side of town. So I knew Fort Wayne is primarily agrarian and very homogenous and um, not a whole lot going on. So I was really dead set on getting out of Fort Wayne but kind of life had different plans. I ended up getting a full tuition scholarship to IPFW. So I've been there the last um, four years, which has been amazing, great school, great professors. I had opportunities while I was there to study abroad, which was amazing, um, both in South Korea and Switzerland. So really broadened my horizons, learned new languages, just a great experience overall. Part of the reason that I feel such a duty to give back to my community is because I was given such uh, push forward. The fact that my education was free is such a gift that most people don't get. Most of my compatriots are coming out of college with 20, 30, 40 or more thousand dollars in debt and here I am totally free. So even though I've chosen to do this system of VISTA, like spend this year and it's not very, it's not really gainful employment like a first job, I feel that I owe it to give back in that way because I've been given so much. Um, so I graduated just this May with my bachelor's degree in business and economics with a background in um, marketing um, management and professional writing. While I was at college, I did um, some work on the newspaper. I was really aware of socialism or social issues, not socialism, that's the social issue too. But um, I was really aware with kind of what was going on in the community because the newspaper is an element we're always reporting on what's going on. So I started to see more of what was happening in Fort Wayne and realized that Fort Wayne's actually quite dynamic, especially once you get into the downtown area. So I started realizing maybe this isn't as dull as I thought it was. And then, so all the transformations that IPFW is going on kind of made me think more deeply about institutions and what they mean to communities and how mm -hmm. they dig in and invest. So a lot happened there in my time at IPFW. And as I was moving forward, venturing, like venturing into the workforce, I just was trying to find my path. And a good friend of mine, his mom, actually found the posting for NeighborLink and is like, this sounds like you. And I'm like, what, is, what job posting? How can you say it sounds like you? I hadn't really ever heard of AmeriCorps Vista. I had um, found it briefly when a friend said, yeah, I'm going to take a gap year in college and go like serve the national parks. I'm like, what are you doing? I don't understand. Yeah. So that's all I had heard about it. I had known NeighborLink from a different um, 
from an internship the previous summer and I had met you, heard your story. Actually, it was super convicting for me because I don't know if you remember this, but you gave your witness about how you became director of NeighborLink and you said, like, you were talking about how you were volunteering all the time. And I felt really convicted because I just didn't have much time. I felt I was always taking 18 or 21 credit hours and working multiple jobs in college. But I asked you, I'm like, how do you find time to volunteer? And you just looked at me and you said, you just make time. Yeah. And so I was like really convicted and interested in NeighborLink. I thought it was doing good work in the community. And she, my friend's mom was right. As soon as I saw the job posting and I read it, it was just perfect. It, like this job fits where my heart's at. The idea, I, I absolutely love researching because there's something about research that pulls together disparate ideas for functional use in society. Like I don't believe in making things for the sake of making things. Like we wanna create productive, useful things that move forward a conversation to actually help people's lives. And that was very evident in this job posting that my work would be spent on application. Like I would be kind of going forward in this process to help like hand deliver something to make this mission of NeighborLink better. And that brings me into the Vista portion of it. Well, there's a, so my interaction with NeighborLink just started off from volunteerism. And so the last 11 years, I've been kind of learning as I go. I don't think at 22, 23 years old, or certainly not even at like 26 when I uh, became the director of NeighborLink. But it's kind of like we showed up and we started serving. And the more that we served or the more we did this work, the more that we uncovered, um, maybe a bit more of the data or the academics or the the framework for the type of work we were actually doing. And so the more we did it, the more we understood or more that we asked questions to kind of learn what we were doing. It felt like when you looked at the position in the several conversations we had um, prior to you starting, you already had somewhat of an awareness that uh, of the structures and the importance of data informing this type of work or so curious what influences or what you were doing in college that really kind of made you aware that there was a function because most economics programs or most marketing programs in university are primarily geared towards the marketplace, not necessarily the social services and beyond, you know, a couple of classes here or there, a couple uh, conversations rarely do you get much of an influence on the social side of things well so that goes I feel like so I'm a pretty reflective person even though I'm a heavy extrovert and that kind of surprises people that I also think just despite just speaking a lot I also think but I do feel that um, my life has been like every moment that I go forward into a new journey everything behind me is influencing and was intentional. Like I believe very strongly in Providence and that I was prepared for this moment by my, the sum of the other experiences I had. So starting from, I had a tremendous like teacher in high school who taught sociology and American history and she really made it comprehensive. So I already knew there, there were these social issues and ongoing struggles in America, even though I didn't quite see them because I was from a pretty middle-class background. I didn't, I was lucky. I didn't have to worry about food insecurity and issues like that, but I was in public school and I had friends who did. So I started seeing kind of how other half lives, how people really struggle. And if you're a child of a family member who has an addiction, 
things don't always turn out as well as you want. And so that awareness kind of informed me in college. I started, I was going to school for, so I changed my major four times in college. I wouldn't recommend it, but it all worked out. I knew that I had to graduate in four years, so it just meant I had to take a lot of classes at the end to make it up. So I started in public advocacy and rhetoric. I wanted to make sure I could speak for people who didn't have a voice, but then I felt very convicted. I I was encouraged by a teacher to look at education because I love teaching. I love sharing knowledge and communicating. And I went into a school just to do some observation and some work with junior achievement. It was a wonderful experience. I got in front of the class. I was leading the class for six classes at Northrop High School. And shaped me and made me want to go into economics and that's a little bit weird so I went from education to economics because I saw how much my the teacher in those classrooms were they were struggling they didn't have resources the school itself had some serious issues and it was hard for me to understand that because it's like you could throw a rock and hit my high school and my high school was very well off and had many resources and had a totally different culture and so how can these schools that are right side by side have such a different dynamic And that I, I wanted to understand that. I wanted to understand the larger forces that made something like that happen. And that led me to economics. So I never wanted to put it into, I didn't want to work in a bank. Yeah. And, and then also going on in some of my courses, my professors were just excellent. And while I was in Switzerland, I actually had the opportunity of studying under a professor in developmental economics. And that's an interesting thing because he started the class by saying, we really don't know anything. Like, so much of this is a guesswork and case study and just an attempt to, because in most of the social sciences and economics is a social science, it's more mathematical than, say, sociology, but it's still a social science. We are trying to measure things based on proxy. Like, I cannot just go and understand exactly, like, what's your livelihood because there are so many factors I have to understand because you can't properly quantify like, what if your mother is taking care of your children? No money's exchanging hands, but you've received something. So I really just wanted to know more. And I feel like that helped me understand how to look at things in different ways in order to pull out and extract meaning. And then I also was really lucky. I had a professor early in college who believed in me and I was, a, I was my freshman year, second semester, and she let me in a 400 level like qualitative research class. So this is my second semester of college. I'm with a bunch of seniors and we had to do basically like an intensive research study. And I realized how much I love just researching. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to get into it. But she also taught me the dynamics of paring down your research, making sure you're living within your scope and you're actually able to accomplish what you want to accomplish, which has helped me because like I, I want to learn everything. So I have to focus it back in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the more that I do this work, the more that I think of like uh, consumer behavior, which is just a function of like the economics. Like, what are the economic factors of the decision making? There's always a give and take. So, what are we, what are we wanting, and what are we giving uh, in order to make that decision? And then how that influences all of us, regardless of your social economics. We're always determined every day. Every choice we make has has a trade off. Yeah. Uh, for what we want, uh, what we think we need, mm-hmm. what we do need, and what we're willing to give for that. Um, that goes far beyond just dollars and cents and And, yeah and a lot of it's awareness like I was talking with um, co-workers today about the idea of people who don't delay gratification because they don't think that far ahead or they've never had an opportunity to make a plan and stick to it sure like when I went to when I went abroad 
I really had to live off a tight budget because I had to raise $10,000 to get there. That was a great experience for me because I realized that I could do something to that scale. And I could also see the support in my community, which like brings to the idea of social capital, something you don't really can't quantify, but is valuable. Well, that experience certainly segues us towards the idea of AmeriCorps Vista. So NeighborLink, I've been aware of the Vista kind of program for the last four or five years, but NeighborLink as an organization hasn't necessarily been in a position to really maximize it. So I hadn't done a ton ton of research, but one of our staff members, Megan, really looked into the opportunity for NeighborLink to partner with the government and receive a grant that allowed us to receive uh, three AmeriCorps VISTAs. Uh, Bernadette is our first, and we are currently actively trying to fill two other positions, uh, which if you're interested after this, all of our information is on our website. So we'll link that in the show notes. But it's a great opportunity for an organization like NeighborLink to really build our capacity. The entire program is designed in a partnership that helps organizations bring on individuals that will help us learn something new, do research, take on projects that we don't have the capacity to. It's not designed to offset our operational needs such as you know, office work or busy work. It's really designed to bring on people like Bernadette who are coming out of school or they're in retirement age or just in kind of a, a gap year phase of mm-hmm. life that are curious about the social sector and the public sector and are willing to commit to an entire year of service and uh, really learn. So tell us a little bit more about the VISTA program in general and what you're doing here in Neighborly. So VISTA is pretty incredible. I think that every American should know about it and we should encourage more people to do it just as part of their life. It's, so it's Volunteers in Service to America. So VISTA is an acronym. And it's specifically, the long-term goal is to eliminate poverty in America. It was born out of the great society and the idea of the war on poverty. So when they were doing the Peace Corps, this was the domestic program. And it was hopefully to mobilize and kind of take resources. You can do so much more if someone's volunteering than if you hire someone full-time in the public sector. Why is that? Because they're only paying, like, I'm not getting paid. I'm getting a living stipend. So whereas you provide extensive benefits, like, if you are hiring someone, usually you're hiring them full-time, right? Hiring and firing is is pretty expensive. It's an expensive process in any sector. But in the public sector, you hire someone, even if you pay them $30,000 a year, that's a lot of money compared to I'm getting paid, I think it's $11,000 for the year of service. And what that is, it's $33 a day in a living stipend. So I'm not getting paid a wage. Some people are like, you're getting slave labor. And I'm like, no, it's volunteer work. Yeah. So they're trying to allow me to live. But the goal is that I actually also live in poverty. Yeah. And that sounds odd because I'm like, I'm supposed to alleviate poverty by living in poverty. It's because resources can go farther, and and how do you know to, how do you know how to alleviate poverty if you've not it lived ex- in poverty? Expressed it exactly. It. That's a huge thing that I'm experiencing is like especially from growing up in a place where yeah, I knew that I had food on the table. I knew that my parents would take care of me. We didn't always have a lot, but it was enough definitely. And now I'm like oh buddy, like a big expense, it really hurts. I'm really thinking about it. There's a statistic and I need to get the accurate, accurate statistic, but it's 
so many like over i think it's half of americans can't pay out of pocket a 500 hundred dollar expense and i feel that right now that sense of i don't have reserves i am living paycheck to paycheck i'm making ends meet but i have to be very careful and what that does even socially like you don't think about how much it costs even just to go out with friends for a couple meals a week I don't you're, have a lot being, of margin. Uh, our staff likes to go out to lunch, and you're being invited to a lot of lunches. Yeah, uh, I have my coworkers are good at taking care of me. Okay. I appreciate it. But there's so much in the way of uh, just that I have a sense of stress about money, and I didn't used to have that because yeah. it's that that reality of it's a fixed income too. So no matter how many hours I work, I really this is what I'm getting. And that's putting me in the mindset of people on disability and people who are retired. And more, so 10,000 people every day turn 65 in America alone, which is a crazy stat. Yeah. And those people who are going on like social security, yeah. how, do you, how do you deal with a sudden expense or how do you take care of something? Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, a lot of the folks that we serve on a daily basis, especially on that, that true social security fixed income, are living on anywhere from 600, roughly $600 to $1,200 a month, depending on whatever kind of wage they you know, stopped working at and whether they have any sort of pension or retirement that can kind of supplement. But most, most of the folks, at least we're seeing, literally are surviving on their disability check trying to live in a home that they've either paid off or lived independently in in a long time. They used to be able to afford it. Uh, many of them will express whether they're eating or paying medication or they certainly aren't saving a whole lot of money to handle the circumstances around housing, at least in our setting. So, mm -hmm. And that's something that really um, kind of hit me. And I also was pretty aware of the over 65 market because my family works take in healthcare for people over 65. So I was already hearing things about people who were like, oh my goodness, I, I can't pay for this. And they'd be like calling and it's like, my parents are working in insurance, but they realize that this person can't even afford housing. It's like how... There's, there's a lot of social issues going on, even though Fort Wayne isn't the poorest city or even it's not, it's not the most diverse, but we still have diversity and we still have a variety of social issues that there's no way a government program can fix everything. Yeah. And that's why I love the idea of a grassroots organization like NeighborLink to fill these gaps. It's, it just, it's so much more mobile than something that the government does from top down. Yeah. So you're, you've joined our team and are really helping our staff uh, lead this, this research over the next year. And this research, we care far more about people than we care about projects. And so this research for us as an organization is more about how does an organization like NeighborLink or an outside organization that lives in the space of being a connector continue to grow and learn and resource neighbors ability to connect with each other we don't have any grand scheme that this research is gonna get us any giant grant or uh, give us kind of the golden program that's gonna take a neighborhood or a neighbor situation and alleviate it and even one neighborhood let alone all of our city but the research is really designed for how do we eliminate the barriers that are existing between neighbors? And one of that oftentimes we see is it's not so much neighbors don't want to help each other. Uh, it's they just don't know, which if you play that out, like, why don't they know each other? 
well, there's social connectivity issues. Uh, do we know each other's names? Or, you know what, do we know the reason why Mrs. Smith that lives three doors down used to be out a lot, but all of a sudden uh, she's, we don't see her out very much, and we're pretty sure she didn't move, but we just don't know. And did we do anything about that? Maybe we didn't even really have much of a connection with Mrs. Smith other than saying hello or waving to each other, so we don't really know each other. We just know something's different. And there's a lot of those things in neighborhoods and in all relationships, regardless, whether it's a workplace or whatever, anywhere there's community and people gathering, there's some of that. And we're curious whether uh, we can learn from that. And this research project is what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy. There's a few things that uh, some key takeaways from the research that I have so far of all the information that we've gathered and each one of the neighborhoods are different and the research has been different. But there's some key characteristics. I think if, if NeighborLink had to make a decision on what we would do next, if we couldn't gather any more information or spend any more time, what could we put our resources on? Uh, there's beautification and trash cleanup. Essentially, can you do what nobody else is willing to do in terms of the beautification or uh, sustainability of our neighborhood? Some neighborhoods mm -hmm. express this more directly than others, but there's a sense in every neighborhood that cleanliness trash cleanup and beautification matters definitely and it's things that are not so much i wish more people would paint their houses there is there could be that but that's kind of street to street block to block and yeah. people don't really care as much about the the status of any individual more than another it's an overall aesthetic and they certainly care deeply about trash cleanup or weeds or this public spaces, the spaces that you wonder whose responsibility is it. Mm -hmm. That's actually something interesting. So in my research, I've come across like the academic terms for those things. And one of that, that is actually neighborhood disorder. This idea of, of it's just off. Things are just not right. I don't necessarily feel good. And one of the interesting studies that I've come across in my research is from the National Institute of Health. And it was interviewing people and seeing how they felt of just having vacant lots like it's just a vacant lot yeah but they felt unsafe to walk at night because of it because they didn't know if someone was in like the weeds they didn't know if someone had left bottles there or needles there you just start looking it's also a breeding ground for vermin and like just unsavory species of animals you don't necessarily want near your home because if you have rats growing right outside your house it's likely they're going to get in your house and that's a public health nightmare so things that i never thought were such a big issue like you see a vacant lot it's like what's the big deal these really are systematic public health issues they make you feel less safe they make your whole neighborhood kind of feel less yeah. than and it's such a small thing like it's such an easy fix a vacant lot if you just mow the grass yeah it's fine it's uh this feeling like the way people feel and i think it's easy for outside organizations to miss this critical fact that there are no shortage of tangible or economic things that need to happen. Homes need fixed. Vegan laws need mode. Uh, neighborhoods need businesses. They need food. They need all kinds of things. They're just tangible needs. And most of the time, the conversation revolves around how do we meet that tangible need, that physical or, or technical thing. But one of the things we're learning because we spend so much time in relational thing is 
how people feel matters as much as those things. Definitely. And so if you look at either one of those, and if you can just change one person's understanding, how we feel is a reflection on what we understand and the knowledge that we have can influence how we feel. And our mindsets can change drastically if we can begin to think about how do we influence people's feelings. And if you look, and if you move on from just like, I wish you just felt better about your neighborhood. Well, if you can influence the things that make them feel that way, then it's really significant. Influencing the people's narrative, I think, is a big part of what I'm learning. Is how do you come in with little to no like resources? You can still have an impact with no resources when it comes to influencing how people feel about their neighborhood. Definitely, that's actually so. Two things that I've come along and seen. So there's a very famous terms of like asset based like community development, ABCD, which is interesting. That's been taken sociologically and transferred into the strengths-based development plan and strength-based community improvement. And I just read this yesterday. I found it fascinating. I've reached out to a couple academics who are doing work in similar fields, and this is a sociologist, and he found that places that speak negatively about their community will be passed by over by developers even if they could do real development there because there's no feeling of possibility and that's why getting in there what you're talking about is that strength-based development that you're going to show them that they're not in the sense of scarcity they really have assets that they can improve with they just have to believe they can improve their biggest limiter is actually the fact that they speak badly about themselves and that other people speak badly about them too. That sense of stigma, like in Fort Wayne, we see Southeast side, oh, it's so bad, it's so bad, it's so crime-ridden. It's like that is actively harming that part of the the region empirically. It it does. It makes a huge sense. And there's great people in that that speak highly, but that leads to another issue, another opportunity that I think so... Trash cleanup, beautification, general beautification and maintenance could be a program that could be developed tomorrow and it would make a, a huge, huge improvement in terms of building trust in that neighborhood to build influence. The next thing that I really learned was uh, communication. The ability for a neighborhood and or neighbors to be able to communicate with one another. Neighbors want to know what's going on in their neighborhood, whether they show up to meetings or not, or whether they even tell you whether they're getting the newsletter or not. It does make a difference and because it's the transferring information. If you want the neighborhood to be more connected and socially connected, then communication is a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. And with communication comes how we communicate, what are we communicating, some of the neighborhoods that we see maybe thriving in this area a little bit better than others is yes, they're using more diverse communication tools and platforms, but they have a kind of economic driver, like a, a home tour, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that home tour, what it does is yes, it generates revenue. So it's an event that they promote, but the promotion and the packaging and the narrative that that neighborhood has to create around. Mm-hmm. Uh, that event is is a huge difference because they've had to, who are we? What do we do? What do we want to communicate? Because we're going to promote this. We need people mm-hmm. to come. And that's a big, big part of it. So they, they have a set of beliefs and then they have an event or the neighbors will push back and t- say, well, no, 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 that's not who we actually are. 
And that creates a healthy dialogue in terms of, mm-hmm. of people saying, okay, well then who are we? Definitely. They, so among my research, the idea of a, so that's kind of getting at the concept of social cohesion that, so I'm going to read this cause I really enjoy this, um, definition. Social cohesion is an emotional and social investment in a neighborhood and a sense of shared destiny amongst residents. They actually care about each other cause they understand that their neighborhood intertwines them in an important way. But Another thing that has been coming up constantly is that community is not just something that happens automatically. You may live next door to someone, like you're saying, not really know them, not really talk to them, not have that sense of vision. But what happened in the event of the home tour, they had a reason to build those webs and create that connection and that social cohesion, which then created the next step of social cohesion is that collective efficacy, the ability to promote and create change as a unit almost like a union, basically. They were able to petition for their needs in the community. They are able to stand on their own and say, we have this identity and create a sense of belonging that other, other communities don't have. And this has actually been a trend since the 1950s. This is going back, as much as the war on poverty was a good idea, what happened when we had a bunch of federal grants influx into communities in America, people stopped looking at small-time philanthropy as an mm, idea sure. and as a solution. Instead, they looked at bigger programs. And then when those grants went away, all of the institutions and the social structures in the community were atrophied to the point that they couldn't take on what needed to be done in the community anymore. So there's some amazing literature about how we're kind of experiencing communities coming out of a vacuum and having to build up their own infrastructure again. And also the idea is we've had so many new changes in society that allow us to be really insular. So social capital is, is this idea. It's, it's a difficult thing to define and there's no one definition, but it's this idea of your relationships and the strength of your relationships and how, that trust matters and how you can rely on other people. Like if you have a lot of social capital in a community, you can go to someone They kind of, they know who you are, they trust you, that you have credibility and you can do a lot on social capital. When they indicate, this is an interesting, there's a national study on social capital and they say social capital goes down in areas where children watch a bunch of television where people are inside, where there's a breakdown in the family. So you see one single parent households, regardless of the situation, like increase in poverty, decrease in voting, all these things work together to undermine the foundation of a community. Mm. And we've just experienced several generations of these things happening. And we've got to now correct those things. Uh, Yeah, this is interesting in terms of the, the last thing that the kind of the key takeaways was, um, yeah, the social connectivity in advance. I think there's a tremendous room. There could be an organization that could come in and only host, help neighborhoods throw parties and events and throw, and do a diverse number of events. One for the sake of maybe educating or, or helping people connect, but the biggest thing is can you get people in the same room with one another, interacting with each other, and it can't just be one big block party. Like it has to mm-hmm. meet the needs of the diversity of the neighbors and not everyone's interested in the same thing. So what does it look like to throw 10 events in a neighborhood over the course of the year and different just for the sake of getting people together so they can uh, work on social connectivity and cohesion and be in the same space enough to where they can have enough conversations to where maybe the, they make a connection. So. Yeah. 
uh, that has to take place before you can get people to a neighborhood association meeting <laughs> to where you can get the democratic process happening and then figuring out whether it's a home tour or something else. And so this research has been really interesting to just see all and just five different neighborhoods of a neighbor, of, of a city that has 200 plus neighborhoods. So uh, if you picked up on uh, the tone, I have a lot of these feelings and these research uh, and the conversations and Bernadette comes in with all of the, the academic research and knowledge, which is exactly uh, what we are looking forward to with your time here in NeighborLink. We're really attempting to take the things we're learning based on the experiences we have and make sure that we're using uh, this grant funding that we got from the Fullinger Foundation to help fund this research to really impact our organization and build on it. And this academic and the research part is going to be a huge part for us to build the right kind of tools in the research so that we can pass on what we're learning to others in an effective way. So we're really excited that you're here and excited about um, this research. Is there any uh, particular research else that you wanted to share today that's like been st standing out i i just there's so much there's so many things that have i, I have like i've read I've, I've pulled like eight books from the library just recently because there are so many things that are meaningful and worth time in taking and reading i think the biggest thing that has stood out to me in the research is just how little trust we have right now in our community mm -hmm. that this distance we have from our neighbors there is no trust there's no sense of of that connective tissue that used to be there like you used to play outside and all your neighbors would watch over your kids yeah. that idea doesn't exist in modern neighborhoods and that for me is really sad and it's weird looking at all of the forces that created this new reality and building trust is not something that happens overnight like you said yeah. you need to do like 10 events 10 different events to try and reach everyone and then maybe it'll spark something yeah. in them that they'll be interested in doing more because so much of it just goes back to a personal commitment yeah. to change and invest in your community yeah there's no way an outside organization can help neighbors build trust between them only two individuals that spend time with one another in some way or are willing to interact with each other can build trust with them. The best case scenario for an organization like us is, or any outside organization, is to, to do things that nobody else is willing to do in order to build trust, um, to gain attention with the leadership. And hopefully, if we're willing to do that, maybe we've learned something or can leverage the right type of resources so they can move forward with the ideas that allow them uh, to create environments for neighbors to build the trust with one another. I think ultimately, if we get back to the mission of NeighborLink and our desire to, to connect neighbors, uh, it is literally less about what people are, are willing to do and whether they know each other. And part of that isn't so, it, you know, part of that's on neighbors reaching out to other neighbors and offering help, but it's also on the neighbors that have vulnerabilities to be able to express their vulnerability to ask for help. And frankly, we just don't have, there aren't many cultures or neighborhoods that have good pathways for that. So I'm really intrigued with what we do with that. We got to uh, wrap up this particular episode of Neighboring. Uh, but if you want to hear and learn more about uh, Bernadette's time, we have a weekly blog post and video project called Bernie on a Journey. She's going to be blogging and documenting her time 
at NeighborLink, uh, Neighborhood Walks and Interactions, what she's learning. So you can find that stuff on the website as well. Uh, we try to end this podcast with the question, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? We'd love to hear what you think that means, Bernie. I've thought about this a while. I think to be a good neighbor is to will the good of the other, to love them. And that's not a passive thing. It has to be an active thing. And if you love someone, you don't love them from a distance. You get up close, you look them in the eye, and you actually like shake their hand. So being more present, being really willing to take whatever may come of it. Because opening yourself up to being a good neighbor means someone hopefully will open up and be a good neighbor to you. That doesn't always happen, but I think making that first gesture is what will make the domino effect and change the world. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on this episode of podcast. Thanks for having me. May we all look at our neighbors in the eye and uh, attempt to connect with them, whether that's in our physical neighborhoods, at our workplaces, or anywhere you are doing community. Uh, can we all learn to, to look at each other and engage and be kind in that way. Thanks for uh, tuning into this episode of Neighboring. We are back on a weekly schedule and we will be releasing some fun episodes and talking to some local organizations and some other neighbors in this area and trying to learn what does it mean to be a good neighbor along the way. Have a great day.